Have you ever thought to yourself, how should a Christian engage in work? Like, what does it look like for your faith to inform your profession, your vocation, the current responsibilities that you hold? You know, if I were to ask you this question or ask most people this question, how does your faith inform your work? Most people would say something like this. I think your faith should inform your work by causing you in the workplace, around peers and coworkers to be nice and to be friendly and to be kind. I think that it should uh, create this kind of uh, conviction to reject different kind of business practices that would be unethical. I think that what it means to be a Christian in the workplace would mean that you should maybe let people know that you're a Christian and that you go to church and invite them to church that you should probably not engage in the office gossip. All these things are good and all these things are true and I think actually all these things should actually be a product of your faith. But the question is, is that it? When you think about what it means to be a Christian in your work and how your faith should inform your work or the current responsibilities you've been called into, is it simply just behavior modification? Refraining from things, engaging in things saying certain things, or is there more? And tonight, in week four of our new series, it's not new anymore because it's four weeks in, but it feels new, even though it's going to be wrapping up in two weeks. The series, The Good Life, we're going through this letter to a church in the city of Thessalonica, and we're going to be discussing work, because Paul, as he has been moving through this text, he's been looking on a macro level, and he's been getting micro these last two weeks. Last week, he talked about sexual immorality, and this week, he's going to talk about work. And this is a really important topic. We all know it because we spend so much time thinking about work and so much time engaging in work. Most of us spend Monday through Friday. Many of us spend Monday through Saturday, sometimes Sunday morning, working. And we're thinking about it. We're stressed about it. We're engaged in it. It takes up so much of our week. It really is a centerpiece of our lives. And it's becoming even more evident by all the new professions and mediums and resources rising up to help us with our work, right? To make us more efficient, more productive, to enable us to grow in our work, to enable us to cope with our work and the stress and the anxiety that we feel. And some of these things are seminars that you attend, right? Self-help seminars, self-help books that you read to learn how to have a more efficient work week, how to uh, kind of reject uh, some of the things that you're feeling so that you can actually prosper when you're feeling the pressure of work. We have life coaches that are helping navigate people through seasons of work and to define whether or not you're in the right place. We have personality tests and strength finders. We have podcasts that we're all subscribed to. Many of us listen to podcasts about work on the way to work, and then coming back from work, we listen to more podcasts about work, right? We're constantly thinking about it. It's a centerpiece of our life. And I, all of these things, from seminars to books to life coaches to personality tests and strength finders and podcasts, these are all good things. They're helpful. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're telling, right? So much of our life is dedicated to engaging in work and thinking about work. It's a centerpiece of our lives in many ways. It used to be a little bit different. Work used to be back in the good old days. You know, work used to be a, a means to an end, right? You worked in order to enjoy the fruit or the product of work. So you would work in order to provide for your family and to, to open up an opportunity for your kids to have a better future. You would work in order to go on vacation and to travel and to experience new cultures. You would work 
in order to retire early and to spend many, many years with your spouse enjoying creation and relationships. And See, we, we still want those things, right? We're still working, and we want to be able to provide for our family. We want to be able to provide for our children a better future. We want to be able to travel and experience new cultures, and now it's easier than it has ever been to go across the world. There's a new flight that's like 14,000 years in the air, I think is what it said. It's like 18 hours in the air. Can you imagine? We can connect with the world. We, we desire those things. We desire to retire early. All of us are imagining that. But work is no longer just a means to an end culturally. Work is now an end in itself. Work is the end. Because, and you hear it in the way that we speak. It's not simply about the paycheck or the things that work can grant you. It's more about the recognition that you receive in your work. Being defined as a successful person. Being praised for your achievements. Feeling as if you made a difference in your life, in your career. And you took a hold of every, every opportunity and you really maximized your potential Work has become an end in itself. And the problem with this is that when work becomes an end in itself, guess what gets wrapped up in it? Your identity, your sense of value, your self-worth. And when this becomes defined by your work, it becomes really dangerous. And here's two ways it becomes really dangerous. One, if you're successful. Some of you here are, you would say, you know, I'm, I'm on a successful track in my career. The current responsibilities I've been Given I've been achieving goals, I've been reaching some dreams, or I feel like they're right there on the horizon. I'm really excited about what's happening in my career and what the future holds. But when work is an end in itself, and when your identity and your self-worth and your value are wrapped up in what you do professionally in your vocation, when you become successful and you reach certain goals, guess what happens? You just make new goals. There's something else to achieve. There's more recognition to receive. You like when people praise you and tell you how successful and good you are. And then what begins to happen is you look at other people in your life, relationships and other things that you value, and you are willing to sacrifice them on the altar of work. You may even boast about how you're a workaholic. You're enslaved to it. But the flip side is true as well, right? When your identity and your self-worth and your value are wrapped up in your work, if you're struggling in your career, or if you feel as if you're failing in some way, well, now you're a failure, right? If you lose your job, you've now lost your self-worth. If you don't receive that promotion that you thought you deserved and someone else got it instead, that you thought you're, you're more qualified, you would be better for that position than them, well, now you feel as if you are a failure and you're inferior and what's wrong with you? Why didn't you get that promotion? Why didn't you get that new job? And you begin to compare yourself to everybody else around you. It's how you tell if work has become your identity, if it's the end of itself. Are you willing to sacrifice other people on the altar of work because you've been successful and you just want more praise and more recognition? Or are you now comparing yourself to other people because you feel like you're failing? And so you've kind of opened up the door to bitterness and depression. I remember when I was in high school and I started to look to get my first job on my own, going to interviews, had a dream job, shop for the stars, Circuit City. You guys remember Circuit City? Raise your hand if you remember Circuit City, come on. Circuit City, RIP, you know what I mean? 
I had this dream of working at Circuit City. I wanted to work in the electronics section. I knew I would be a great fit. I could talk about TVs and sound systems and video games because I used to play video games. I kind of still play them, but we won't talk about that. But I wanted to be there. I felt like I could move product. I had this just picture, this dream. Someone coming in, you know, I'm just looking for a new TV. Oh, let me, let me help you out with that. Let me tell you about these TVs. Let me tell you about these sound systems. You want Bose, you want Clips, you want Samsung. Who do you want to work with? Let me tell you the pros and cons. Video game, let me tell you my review of this video game. And I also knew that there's a discount. So I was like, maybe I'm going to get a new TV. I'm going to get some cheaper video games. This is going to be great. So I go to Circuit City. I apply. I have the interview. They ask me my strengths and weaknesses. I felt prepared. I was ready to go. And I walked out of that interview, and I'm like, I crushed it. Like, I crushed this interview. First interview, easy done. Why was I nervous? So I go home. I'm waiting. I'm going to get the call. They're going to say, Carter, they're probably going to call me Mr. Brown because they know that they need me in the electronic section at Circuit City. So I'm waiting a day. I don't get a phone call. I'm like, okay, you know, a couple days go by. A week goes by. Two weeks go by. It's like, has the place burned down? Maybe someone stole the papers. I don't know why they haven't called me yet. So I called them. Hey, this is Carter. Applied for the job, electronic section. I'm a perfect match. Just wanted to know why I haven't got a call back. The lady was very kind. She says, oh, you didn't get the job. We want somebody else. I got to go. I'm like, wait, what? Somebody else? I'm the, I'm the perfect fit. I, I, I mean, honestly, I was crushed. Like, this was my dream job. This is what I wanted to do. I was going to make money. I was going to engage in this area, in this department. I thought I would be so good at it. And then I talked to my friends, and my friends... We're getting jobs. One of my friends got a job at Best Buy. <laughs> One of my other friends got a job at Circuit City up north. One of my other friends got a job at GameStop, and I didn't even apply to GameStop because I felt like if you're going to work at GameStop, you've got to have a video game tattoo on your arm. So I didn't even apply there, and he didn't have a tattoo, and he got in there. And I was like, man, what's wrong with me? Am I a failure? Am I inferior? Why didn't I get the job? So I boycotted Circuit City, and look at them now. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I, I had to, you know, get a job, and so I got a job at a nursery, not with children. They would have never hired me. It was a plant nursery. So I went from dream of working in the electronics section of Circuit City to moving plants around and watering them and repotting them. <laughs> I look back on it now, and it was like fond memories because I learned the value of hard work, and I learned a lot about plants so I can take care of a garden. But... Man, in that moment, I felt horrible, especially because my friends were getting the jobs that I wanted. I felt inferior. I felt like maybe I'm a failure. What's wrong with me? What did I say? What did I do? You know, I, I've been raised in a culture, and we've all been raised in a culture, where work is an end in itself. Work is a centerpiece of your life, and when you fail, you feel like a failure. And when you succeed, you feel like it's all you. And so you're willing to sacrifice other things in order to get more of that taste of success. And it's a really dangerous thing to do. And, and Paul wants to speak on that. You know, there's some studies have come out that are really telling. And, and here's one that was really shocking to me. Over 50% of Americans do not use all of their PTO in a given year. Over 50% do not use paid time off because, many of you are in that boat, because there's too much work to do. When you haven't seen somebody for a while 
and you, maybe it's a week, a couple weeks, you, you shake their hand, you say hi, you're like, hey, how's it going? What's the common response? Really busy, crazy busy. Like, it's good, but I'm really busy right now. I mean, we're busy, I'm busy, I get it. I use that response too, but why do we say that? We say that because though we may be busy, we're wanting to project to other people that we're doing something that matters, that we're busy, like we're hustling, we're grinding, because we, I have value then, right? I have value. I have, I'm worthy because I'm working hard. I'm busy. I want, just want you to know that. I'm not just relaxing here. Because our self-worth and our identity and our sense of value is wrapped up in our work. And it's not where it should be. Your identity and your self-worth and your sense of value has nothing to do with your work. At least it shouldn't. And Paul wants to speak to that. But he's going to say something really important and really good to hear, which is work does matter. It does matter. And God does care for work. And so he's going to outline for us what it looks like to do work that matters. And so let's jump into verse 9. Here's what it says. The first two verses. The Apostle Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. Paul is writing to this church, and, and he's saying, listen, I, I know that you have been showing brotherly love to those within the church and those outside of the church in your work, both in ministry and professionally, you have been showing love, but I'm urging you to continue to show it more and more and more. Do not forsake showing love to others. This word brotherly love is the Greek word, uh, um, the Greek word is phileo adelphos, and that is where we get the city Philadelphia, and that is the city of brotherly love. If you ever want to experience brotherly love, just go to Philadelphia. It's there. It is evident. But this word, brotherly love, or phileo adelphos, is a word that talks about friendship. It's a word between friends, but it actually extends outside of just the person that you like and you know. It extends out to the outsider and to the stranger. And so what this word is causing you to think is that it's simply showing love to others. Brotherly love is showing love to others, your friends and outsiders and strangers. So Paul is saying, continue to show love to the outsider, the stranger, and those within your church. He's grounding their work in love. Your work is to be grounded in love. And this church here was known for this. Actually, in the city, the church was known as a very open and hospitable place where you could find love. You could engage in the community regardless of your background, regardless of your social class, regardless of your vocation, regardless of your ethnicity. This church was open and welcoming. It was known as a place of brotherly love. There was a spirit of love within this church, and it wasn't only seen and observed, but it was contagious because it was countercultural. This community had barbarians and Greeks and Jews and Macedonians and Romans all coming together, becoming friends with one another, spending time with one another, worshiping together, 
engaging in business together, praying for one another. This doesn't happen. This didn't happen anywhere else. All these different people from all these different backgrounds coming together, men and women being treated as equal, citizen and foreigner coming together. And maybe most striking of all was the fact that in this community, when they would gather, all of these different people that would in other places never speak and never spend time together, and there would be a hierarchy They would come together as one and as equals, and then during this gathering, this worship service, they'd not only sing together and listen to God's word together and pray together, they would then come to the Lord's table and partake of it together. No order, doesn't matter how much money you make or you don't make, doesn't matter your background, what you look like, everybody comes together as equals to partake of the Lord's Supper as one. And this was shocking. This sense of brotherly love and connection. And they become famous for it. Not only within the city, but they become famous because they took this understanding of brotherly love, not just between friends, not just between those who actually come into the walls of the church, but they knew that they've been called to ground their work in love. And so they looked to show love to others. They showed love within the church, but also in their professions, when they were on business trips, when they were engaging in the city, and they they came together as a community, and they were known for their exceedingly generous heart. They would gather together resources. They would use their time and their talent to care for other churches in the region, other cities that were struggling. They sent all types of resources all the way to Jerusalem to care for churches there as well. Many of these people they've never met. But they've been called to ground their work in brotherly love, which means they are not only to care for their friends, but for the outsider and the stranger, the people that they've never met. And Paul is saying that I know that you are known for this. I know this about you, but I'm urging you, do not stop. Continue. Strive to show brotherly love in everything you've been called to. Every responsibility you've been given is to be grounded in love for others. And he says something really interesting in the passage. He says that, and you were taught this by God. This isn't just Paul's opinion. He's not just saying, hey, listen, here's a good idea to ground your work in love. This is my opinion. He's saying, God has taught this to you. It's evident in God's word that your work is to be grounded in love. And so you see this all the way in the very beginning of the Bible, right? The first two chapters, God is working He works for six days, and then he takes a break. He takes a Sabbath rest. Some of us need to hear that. Work six days and then actually take a break. And he calls it good. In the very beginning, as well as he works, he gives this mandate to us that we are to work. And this is before the fall. This is before sin entered and corrupted us and everything else. He says that you are to do work as well. You're to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. You see, God has been teaching that work is good from the beginning and that all legitimate work is God's work and it's to be grounded in love, which means that God's work is not to seek to exploit others. It's not to seek to bring harm to others or should not be fueled by greed, but fueled by brotherly love. It's grounded in love. And so God's work is 
grounded in love, and that is our work as well. And when you think about that, when you hear that, that all work is God's work, and God's work is to be grounded in love and not fueled by greed, not seeking to exploit, not looking to bring harm to others, you think maybe to yourself, man, do I need to change my job? (laughs) Because many of you I know are are a part of companies or are in arenas where you're like, man, there's a lot of exploitation. And a lot of people in my industry are fueled by greed. My boss is fueled by greed. The company seems to be fueled by greed. There's a lot of things that happen within my company and in, in my sphere that I feel like are not concerned about showing love to others. In fact, maybe even looking to bring harm. So how do I navigate that? Like, what does it look like for me to be a Christian that has grounded my work in love and is not seeking to exploit and to be fueled by greed and to seek to bring harm to others? You know, it's really important to remember what God says all throughout the whole counsel of Scripture. One, he never says making money is bad. He says greed is bad. Those are two different things. Secondly, he also tells that for you as a Christian, you have no right to judge or to seek to control the actions or the motivations or the intentions of somebody that does not claim to believe in God. It's understandable why people that have no relationship with God and and don't trust God and don't believe in God are fueled by greed and are looking to exploit others and even looking to do harm because work is an end in itself and they're looking to be successful. So it's okay to be a part of a company and to be a part of an arena and an industry where you feel like you see greed and exploitation and harm all around you, but you have been called to refrain from it. You have been called to stand firm on the values that God has set forth of what it looks like to ground your work in love. And that means to protect yourself against greed to disengage or to avoid different kind of decisions that may be seeking to exploit or bring harm to others. And when you hear that, you're probably fearful a little bit, right? Like that could cause some problems if I like speak up and say that, or if I disengage from something. And I get it, it could. But Paul is saying something really striking here that all work is to be grounded in love. And he's saying that God has taught this in the whole council of scripture. And there's almost like this little prick, like do you believe that the good life in regards to your work is as God defines it, is grounded in love? That when you take the step in faith to, to, to refrain from exploiting, to speak up when you feel like something is gonna bring harm or is unethical, and when you, you back off of greed, when everyone else around you is encouraging you towards that, do you trust that that's the good life? Another part of this, you may feel like, well, I, how do I know? You know, like, how do I know when to avoid and when to refrain and when to speak up? Because I, I want to believe that my work is grounded in love. It's about brotherly love. And that God has been teaching this all throughout scripture. But how do I know when? You see, as a believer, there's a a promise that's been given to you. If you you claim faith in Jesus Christ, if you've come to know God, you've been given this really great promise. And it helps you to rest and to breathe easy. And Jesus says this in John 16. Here's your promise. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
You may be full of fear, like I don't know when or how to engage or disengage. I want, I want to live a life of love in my career. I want to have my work grounded in love. I want to protect against greed. I, I don't want to exploit and bring harm to people. And I want to be strong to stand up when I need to and to trust that this is the good life. But how do I know when? Well, the spirit of truth will let you know. He will let you know. And when you hear all this, you know, you remember at the very beginning I said that to be a Christian in the workplace and your faith informing your work, does it simply mean behavior modification? Because it kind of sounds like that right now, right? It kind of sounds like what I'm saying is that to be a Christian in the workplace is to realize that your work is grounded in love, don't exploit people, protect against greed, and seek to not do harm. And that is true. But you may be thinking to yourself, I understand that God cares about my thoughts and my attitudes and my actions, but is there more than that? I mean, how does God actually view my work? What does he think about it? God is pro-work. He created, as I said in the very beginning in Genesis, God worked for six days and then he rested. He gave us the cultural mandate. Before even sin and corruption entered the world, we've been called to work. There's dignity in work. In fact, all work is God's work. All legitimate work. Now, work that is seeking to simply exploit and bring harm to people, whether it's drug trafficking or pornography or whatever the other industries may be, that's not God's work. But all legitimate work is God's work, whether you are a farmer or a financial analyst, whether you are a doctor or a doorman, whether you are a mathematician or a mom, whether you are a lawyer or a legal analyst whether you are an accountant or you are an apple picker, whatever it may be, all work is God's work. White collar, blue collar, simple, complicated, all of it is God's work. And listen, I want you to hear this. Not all work is paid. Not all work is paid. I'm speaking about not only your vocation, but also the responsibilities and things that God has called you into. Plenty of work is volunteered. Many of you volunteer for organizations. Many of you volunteer here and give your time and your talent. That's work. Many types of work is unseen and unrecognized, like parenting. That's work. A lot of work is preparatory, like school. And many of you that are in school right now are like, yeah, I wish I was paid. <laughs> I know some work is unpaid, and it's unfortunate. <laughs> Not all work is paid, but all legitimate work is God's work. Martin Luther, the pastor and reformer, he says this, that when you work, paid or unpaid, blue collar, white collar, it is as if you, you are the fingers of God. And what he, he explains that, he says, what he means by that is that in your work, whatever it may be, you're the fingers of God bringing his providential love to others. He's saying that God uses work to show his love and his care for other people. That's how God reveals his love oftentimes to people. And so if this is true, if your work is to be grounded in love and all legitimate work is God's work, regardless of what it is, it should inform a few things. In your life. This theology of work should inform one how you view others. It should never allow you to look down on somebody else for what they do. Never. So, one of the problems of higher education, right? 
Many of us in this room, college degree, master's degree, working on a PhD, or you have your PhD, wonderful things, great things. But one of the things that happens in a culture that promotes more and more and more education and titles and degrees is that when someone works a job that is defined as like simple, you kind of view it as lesser. You define someone's value in their career by how much money they make or what their education is that afforded them an opportunity for a certain position. You see, this theology of work, that your work is to be grounded in love and all work is God's work, should never allow you to look down on anybody for their career because all work, blue collar, white collar, is God's work. But secondly, it should inform your work. It should inform how you engage with your work because you begin to realize that regardless of what you've been called into, regardless of your responsibility and your vocation, God is using you to show his love to other people. And you may never see it, but he's using your work to reveal his providential love to others. You are the fingers of God. Think about the times that you've experienced like the overwhelming love of God. Maybe it's when you had a tax break that you found out about, or you got a higher tax refund when money was tight. You could pay your bills and pay your debt down. Maybe it was a time you took a vacation and you sat up on this cliff and you watched the sunset and you just felt the love of God and you're viewing just his majestic creation. Maybe it's the time where you went to the doctor and you went through this procedure and you found healing for a disease that you were struggling with. Maybe it's when you received that new promotion that you never thought you'd get or you were offered a job totally out of the blue that felt like it was exactly what you've been called to. Or maybe it was just that song that you listened to and it was exactly what you needed to hear in that season of your life. All of those examples of ways that you may have experienced God's overwhelming love and care and concern for you all involve people at work. It involves your CPA letting you know about the tax break. It involves the people that created TurboTax, enabling you to get the higher refund. It was the flight attendants and the pilots and the travel agency and the hotels that enabled that vacation for you to sit on that cliff to experience that sunset and the love of God. It was the doctors and the nurses that took care of you and enabled you to be healed through this procedure and medication. It was the researcher that actually came to understand this formula that would enable people to get healed. It was the upper executives and the bosses that looked at you and believed in you and, and offered you a job when you never expected. It was the people at another company that were working really hard to open up this position that they would invite you to take. It was the musicians and the songwriters and the producers that wrote the song and then the people that maintain iTunes and Spotify that brought it to your ears. See, all of these times where we experience the overwhelming love of God in our lives, whether through song or through medication or through a trip or through a tax refund or through a new job or promotion, it all involves other people at work. God is using other people in their work to reveal his love to you. For me, I think about the time my son Roman was born. 
experience the overwhelming love of God in that moment. And it's obvious to think about the doctors and the nurses and how God used them to reveal his love to me at the birth of my son. But as I think about it, there's so much more. God used the people that built that hospital, that enabled that to be a comfortable place. God used the construction workers and the traffic workers that make the roads safe and drivable, the people that made the car that we drove to get there quickly, the police that look to enforce the laws so that we have some type of order, as I'm saying in Miami, some type of order on the roads so we could get there. All of these different things God used to reveal his overwhelming love to me in that moment. He uses people at work to reveal and to show his love and his care and his concern for his people. And he's using your work to reveal his love to others, and you may never see it. On this side of heaven, you may never, ever see it. And when you know that, when you believe that, and you're, you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, okay, my work is grounded in love. All legitimate work is God's work. God actually wants to use my work to show his love to others. That should inform something very important about how you are to work, and that's with excellence. You see, as a Christian, one of the things that it means to engage in your work as a Christian means that you work excellently. You work hard. No laziness, no complaining, no slacking off. Why? Because you believe in an excellent God that wants to use you as a broken person in your job to use all the things that you do to show his love to other people. And therefore, you want to lean into that. You want to give all that you have to what he's called you to. And he gives you kind of what that looks like. What does it look like to work excellently in your career? He says this in closing in verse 11 and 12. He says, aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Seems strange. He says, here's how I want you to work excellently. Here's how I want you to work. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your own hands. It kind of sounds like Paul is saying this. When you go to work, just keep your head down and do your job. Like, just don't rock the boat. Keep your head down and do your job. But notice what he says at the end because the end informs the beginning. He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Here's why he's saying that. In this city, in the first century in Thessalonica, to be labeled a Christian, to be identified as a Christian, did not bring about positive effects on your life. It was very dangerous, in fact. Physical persecution was commonplace, and you'd be living in fear of that, but there was also the reality that your career and your job was going to be affected. People were not going to want to do business with you. You probably weren't going to get that promotion. You may get fired. You may not get hired. There's going to be an effect on your career and your job because you identified as a Christian. You were going to come up against barriers and discrimination. And Paul is saying this, listen, I know you're going to face barriers. You're going to face discrimination. To live a life where your work is grounded in love 
and to seek to do that excellently is going to be hard because there's going to be factors around you that are going to be a struggle. But I'm urging you to keep going because you should not seek to just give up and be dependent upon other people because your work is grounded in brotherly love. See, the tendency and the temptation would be to be like, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of these barriers. I'm tired of all this stuff that's been happening around me. I'm just going to kind of take the foot off the gas. I'm going I'm to kind of sit back a little bit. And I'm going to allow the people at church to take care of me. I'm going to allow the government to take care of me. I'm going to allow other people to work, and I'll reap the benefits of that because I'm frustrated about what I've been facing. And Paul says, that's not brotherly love. Whatever you've been called into, whether it's blue collar, white collar, simple or complicated, you are called to work excellently so that you do not be a burden. You don't place a burden upon other people. In fact, you want God to use your work to show his love to other people. Look at the descriptives that he says here. He says, you should live quietly. What he's saying there is that you should live without complaining. Don't complain. In your career, in your job, wherever you're at, don't complain. You begin to compare yourself to other people, you start to complain. You hit barriers in your career, you start to complain. You're frustrated at where you're at because you're not where you thought you'd be, you start to complain. He's saying, live quietly, don't complain. Realize and believe that God has you where he has you and recognize that because even though culture may put different careers and different jobs on different pedestals, that all work is God's work. And it's to be grounded in love. So he says, don't complain. And then secondly, he says, mind your own affairs or really mind your own work. Focus on what you've been called to. Stop looking at everybody else and what they've done or what they're doing or where they're at. Put down Instagram for a little bit and stop following people and comparing yourself to them. Stop complaining and mind your work. Focus on what you've been called to where you are. And then he says, and work with your own hands. What he means there, what, what in the context you understand what he's saying, which is don't take the foot off the gas. Don't slack off. Don't give 50%. Don't drop responsibilities and think to yourself, well, someone else will pick it up. I don't feel like doing it. Don't do that. Because when you do that, when you don't work with your own hands, you are now going to place a burden of responsibility on somebody else to pick up the slack because you were unwilling to work excellently in what God has called you to. And that's not brotherly love. You see, Paul is saying here that the good life in regards to work understands a few things. One, you understand that because your work is grounded in love, you are to not be fueled by greed. You're to not seek to exploit others or bring harm to others. Instead, you're to look to show love in whatever it is that you do. And secondly, that you've been called to work excellently. You've been called to not complain with where you're at. So easy to complain. We live in a complaining city. We complain about everything. Don't complain. Mind your work and believe that God has you where he has you. And regardless of what you, where you are, all work is God's work, paid and unpaid. And then work excellently in what you've been called to because you believe that God is wanting to use you to reveal his love to other people and you may never see it.
you may never see it. And this is the good life in regards to work. And I want to remind you of something before we begin to close our service. We have a party in the back and you spend some time getting to know new people. And then you go home tonight and you're going to get ready for work. <laughs> you're going to start thinking about work. You're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to have a coffee. And you're like, all right, I'm going to live excellently. I'm going to ground my work in love. I want to remind you that you're not also to work out of your own strength. It can be so easy to be like, okay, I'm going to have a little, you know, card. I'm not going to exploit. I'm not going to be fueled by greed. I'm going to love other people. I'm not going to complain today. I'm going to mind my own business, my mind my own work, and I'm going to work hard. But we're not to work in our own strength. The Apostle Paul says this in his letter to the first Corinthian, to the Corinthian church. I love this verse. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder, worked excellently, than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, as we prepare to go out and to work and to engage in our careers and to recognize that all work is God's work, that it's to be grounded in love and we're to pursue it with excellence, we're not to do that in our own strength. Instead, we're to trust God's grace, meaning you come to realize that because of Christ's work, because of what Christ has done on the cross for you, you're actually free to trust. You're free to have hope, to rely on God's grace wherever you're at, because your identity does not have to be rooted in your career. Your identity, be, your identity is rooted in Christ. You're free, and you're forgiven, and you're loved, and so you can trust in God's grace in your work. You can ask for it. In prayer, you can ask for it, and then you can rely on it. Martin Luther has this great quote, and I want to challenge all of us to live like this. He says, tomorrow I plan to work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. That's how we engage in God's work. We spend it relying on him in prayer, trusting in his grace, and then knowing that God wants to use us as the fingers of God to reveal his love to others, and so we ground our work in love, and we work excellently. Let's pray. God, we are people that really have our identity rooted in what we do and what we believe that we've achieved on our own. God, I pray that we would not fall into that trap. That we would come to understand and to believe that, God, wherever we're at, whatever work you've called us to, paid and unpaid, white collar, blue collar, simple or complicated, that it is your work. Lord, would you unseat the idol of work in our life, where we've made it a place where we determine our value and our self-worth, where our identity is wrapped up in it, and would we hand it over to you and find our identity in you, Christ? Would we come to believe that you actually want to use us and that you are using us in our careers and in the responsibilities that you've given us to, to show your love to other people, people that we may never meet, and therefore, our work is to be about brotherly love for the stranger, the outsider, and for 
those around us and that we should pursue the things that you've put before us with excellence. Would we rely on your grace in this? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.